Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Cold Fusion Now recently returned from the 21st International Conference on Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, ICCF 21, held at the University of Colorado beside the beautiful Rocky Mountains in Fort Collins, Colorado. The conference allows scientists in the CMNS community to gather and share data as they try to solve one of the biggest scientific questions of our time. How is it that nuclear reactions, reactions once only thought to occur deep within stars like our sun, have been found to occur in a very different form in solid materials at relatively low temperatures? And in understanding that science, how can an ultra-clean new energy technology based on the hydrogen and water be engineered swiftly. You can find notes, photos, and audio recordings of the ICCF 21 presentation lectures on our website at coldfusionnow.org. There were solid experimental results presented with several labs reporting 6 to 20 watts excess heat consistently with on-off control from a variety of different design type cells. For groups seeking to engineer a technology, scaling up is the next step. And that's where theory can help. Currently, there's no agreement on a definitive model or theory of the cold fusion Lenner reaction. Special sessions at ICCF 21 devoted to theory performed a real service to the CMNS community by exposing some of the current theoretical ideas and it gave theorists a chance to share their models with experimentalists in more detailed language. In this Monday morning ICCF 21 talk, we join Dr. Michael McCubre, already in progress, as he speaks about the Fleischmann Pond's heat and ancillary effects, and asks, what do we know and why? How might we proceed? Since March 23rd, 1989, I entered the field mostly because I knew Martin. I knew him to be an extraordinarily inventive and imaginative guy, and I think had it been anybody except Martin, I wouldn't have bothered to to go into the laboratory. The idea was uh, transparently ridiculous. But he was Martin. I also had Better, better reason to reject his claims, having worked in the deuterium palladium system for already a decade at that uh, point. So I've been exploring palladium in heavy water for 10 years for an entirely different uh, purpose. And I thought I understood the system. So in 1989, it, I understood deuterium palladium, got it. Uh, Nearly 30 years on, I, I, I know a lot less now than I knew uh, then. And my, my uh, windows of ignorance have opened wide. Uh, until two years ago, as Dave said, my effort was essentially uh, full-time on this topic, uh, essentially uh, fully uh, funded. And at least half of my focus for the last 30 years has been on uh, cold fusion and related uh, matters. I was sort of head down, buried in a trench, looking at the, this world in a particular way. And in, in a way, retirement to New Zealand has given me an opportunity for, for reflection. So what I'm doing while I'm sitting on my uh, deck overlooking the ocean, uh, drinking a beer, is thinking about uh, what did I do? You know, what do I know? What what have I been saying to you uh, over the years, which is not actually completely true? What what are the things have I what things have I convinced myself of by repetition that aren't quite as solid as I uh, uh, um, maintained and believed? Uh, so so uh, I covered a lot of this yesterday. You know, a little bit of retrenchment and retraction. I don't back off any of the big claims, but some of the details need a little tweaking. <laughs> so this reflection has done me some good. I'm still learning to drive this uh, tool. There you go. 
Um, just a reminder for, for those that haven't attended every one of these uh, conferences, the contributions that my group, which is a, which is a, a broad group, I have a, uh, a slide at the end which acknowledges my important collaborations, which has 59 people on it. Unfortunately, I think 13 of them no longer are with us, but it, it was a large group, a large effort, a large focus on the things that we, uh, we knew very well at the beginning. The loading diagnostic resistance ratio was something that I've been using uh, as a tool since 1978 when I arrived at SRI. So I was well poised to uh, use resistance methods to measure the loading of deuterium into palladium. I have an electrochemistry background, specifically electrochemical kinetics, so I understood that the tools and means and tricks that one might need to employ in order to push deuterium as hard as possible into a palladium. I had no background in calorimetry. I had no intention of having any background <laughs> in calorimetry or design. But um, if you're looking for heat, you've got to use uh, calorimetry. So we basically taught ourselves calorimetry and, and pretty much dragged mass flow calorimetry kicking and screaming into the 20th century. And I mean 20th century. We've done work on uh, observation of tritium, both directly as uh, tritium and its decay product, uh, helium-3. Done a fair amount of work with uh, helium-4 uh, measurements. And uh, in the early days with uh, EPRI sponsorship, the uh, charge was examine all possible nuclear products simultaneously. Sounds scientifically reasonable, but it is practically impossible and hideously expensive. But the biggest problem is to optimize one detection method, you always compromise another. So you have to be quite selective in what it is you set out to measure. But every one of the experiments we did was uh, continuously monitored for neutrons for radiation health cell, uh, purposes and, and uh, gammas and other things. So we've done a lot. That actually has nothing to do with my talk. I just wanted to you know, boast a little. <laughs> so all that time and all that work, I think it's time for uh, condensed matter nuclear science, cold fusion, to be anomalous no more. I want it to be normal, interesting physical science. I don't want to, to uh, curb and hold my tongue in meetings of learned physicists. I want them to engage in dialogue, and until that such time as we can engage in free and open dialogue with the broader scientific community, I don't think we're going to make very much uh, progress. But if the name of condensed matter nuclear science is accurate and meaningful, we have the possibility to wield the power of nuclear physics on a tabletop. Heat is a poor product, it's the worst product. What else might one be able to do if one can wield some, all, or more of the power of nuclear physics uh, directly under your control in a, in a uh, you know, tabletop experiment? Everyone here wants this to happen. You've self-selected. The reason you're in this room is you're curious, and you're curious because you would like it to happen. Okay, in the face of cognitive uh, dissonance, and Tom uh, spoke some about this, I love this quote from Erwin Shapiro, he's a Harvard uh, astrophysicist, and he uh, meant it ironically, of course, but the best explanation for the moon is observational error. The moon doesn't exist. It, it's a much more comfortable situation rather than explain the anomalies of its you know, situation, spin, geology, density, and whatever, it's, it's, we could just say, it, just pretend it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, or fortunately, every night, almost every night, 
it proves and reproves itself. So this this hypothesis is, is you know, re repeatedly demonstrated to be unsound, but so equally is the notion that cold fusion doesn't exist. It is uh, it repeats itself almost daily in one or other laboratories around the world. So we can't just shy away from uh, the, the things that we've seen. And uh, uh, quite honestly, I, I, it wasn't until I saw the effect with my own eyes in my own laboratory under my own control that I was prepared to accept that this was a real thing, despite the fact that my, my teacher and good friend Martin Fleischmann, one of the brightest people I ever, ever engaged with, had told me it was true. I still needed to prove it for myself, but I think that's fair. That's fair. But what also is fair is that if you're going to reject uh, the notion of cold fusion, you have to dig into the literature, read it, understand it, and make sure that you go back to primary sources. <laughs> so, what about pathways to break through this log jam? My uh, five shuns, verification, correlation, replication, demonstration, utilization, and these don't have to be sequential. I submit to you that the first verification has already happened. It happened 1991, 1992. I'll give you some backup for that to claim in a, in a following slide, but at ICCF 20, which I didn't attend, very, very um, sad not to have attended, the first one I didn't attend, but Matt Trevithick, in my uh, name, charged the community with a set of what I saw as the, the problems that we were uh, having. Self-censorship, excuse me. We seem to be a little timid. I wonder if we're not uh, concealing and hiding our research for fear of disturbing you know, angry large people who might uh, cause us harm financially or uh, otherwise. Are we guarding our secrets, secrets for fear that others might take credit? And yes, the answer is yes. I and mean, every one of you researchers is holding something back because you don't want to give it up. You don't want somebody else to take it and run with it faster than you're running with it. Anyone, but however, anyone that wants, that believes that we're working on a a uh, problem that has the potential to relieve mankind's primary problem. Our primary problem is where are we going to get our energy from in the future, preferably without further messing up the planet. You believe that. You gotta, you must collaborate, cooperate, communicate. Now, uh, I've spent a career in confidential research. I understand the problem, but uh, I'm, I'm here now and free to do so, um, to exhort a much higher level of collaboration and cooperation and communication. We communicate poorly. Our publication record is not very good and not very well codified. I want to uh, call attention to two people who I think have done a, a, a very large amount to reverse that. I see them right here in front of me. Uh, Jed Rothwell and his uh, uh, website is, is a marvelous resource. When I left SRI, I threw away six dumpsters worth of stuff. Well, uh, I, uh, my uh, library in New Zealand has not even been built, so I have no access uh, to, to a lot of the material. I can go on Jed's site and pull down my own papers, which is just, just a wonderful, wonderful tool. And, uh, And Jean-Paul, uh, uh, stewardship of the uh, journal, is, uh, which is uh, apparently getting increasing submissions, uh, and, and the quality is increasing. Thank you, John. <laughs> but our communication record is bad. <laughs> and this failure is both accidental and deliberate. Um, we are concealing. 
you are concealing, I am concealing, in fact. I am, I am concealing things from you because I've signed my life away on a piece of paper to, now that I'm not at SRI, I don't have institutional lawyers to back me up, so I have to be even more careful about whose secrets I don't give away. But there's also been an enormous amount of repetition, and I uh, hit on this yesterday. We've discovered the same thing several times over, sometimes because it's been, some, been concealed, but sometimes because it wasn't read. It was uh, stated orally in presentations, conference proceedings, and, and journal publications, and um, several things which I knew very well and spoke about in 1990 have been rediscovered two or three times later by research groups at a huge expense of effort and labor and time and skill. There, the, the literature is not in the best possible shape, but it is, there is a literature, and there is much good work in it, and it really needs to be studied better. So what Matt said, I'll, I'll blame it on Matt, in, um, at ICCF 20 was a grand uh, challenge. And what I said through Matt was that I would come here and I would rank the community against its uh, success against these uh, objectives. And the numbers on the right in blue are my ranking on, uh, out of 10 of how well we've uh, achieved in these various things, produced fresh experimental results of non-chemical anomalies. <coughs> I'm embarrassed frequently to give presentations and go back to data that I measured in 1990, 1991. Uh, there was a, a huge flux of new information came out, but you know, fresh things are not really happening at the rate that I would like to see. Um, I, I don't want to use me as a source. I want to use you guys and your resource, your research as a, as a source of uh, moving forwards. <coughs> New anomalies need to be seen, observed, measured, and replicated in multiple laboratories. These results need to be communicated clearly. Technical articles, JCMS is fine. If we can do it other places, that's good too. And I would like to see us, as a group, as a community, identify the three or four best experiments and organize some sort of multi-laboratory efforts to replicate it. Write some papers, peer review. But as you see, my, my scale uh, here, only communication sort of gets a four. Everything else is one, two, or zero. Um, we haven't done pretty much, we have not done a good job of, of any of the things. Now, it's my challenge, so it, it's, it's, not, it's not up to, to you to do it, it's up to me to somehow uh, stimulate this, but we, we just didn't do a very good job against the challenges that Matt uh, set, or I set through Matt. How are we doing on these shuns, you know, verification, correlation, replication, whatever? Verification, I'd say it's done. Uh, it, I, I, in preparing this, I went back to a review that Jed Rothwell had written in 1996 about the first EPRI report, which was published in 1994, of work that was all completed by 1992. I'll read Jed's words. These are Jed's words, not mine. EPRI and SRI have followed the rules. They've done what scientists are supposed to do. They've published impeccable, thank you, Jed, <laughs> utterly convincing research in top-ranking peer-reviewed journals. Then they stood quietly aside, politely waiting for applause and recognition. This, Jed, Jed got that wrong. I didn't stand politely aside. <laughs> And by now, it's obvious that it will never come. The poop reveals that cold fusion will only attract attention when it can be demonstrated as a viable technology. Those words in red came as a shock to me because I've 
started saying that again. I didn't realize I was so smart in uh, 1996. <laughs> well, I am sad, actually. This shouldn't be the way that uh, science uh, progresses, but it, I think it has to be. And this last half of the talk is how we might do this. Uh, and Jake quotes me in a, in a radio interview, now these are my words, people's attention need to be grabbed by something that's simple, unarguable, concrete, and rugged. And it has to be simple enough to explain to the average person or average politician who's slightly lower level. <laughs> and it really has to be a lot more robust than anything that we've generated so far. So I recognized where we needed to go and that we weren't there. Now I'm going to try and take you in a pathway that might allow us to get there. The we, we covered verification. I say it's done. I'd say Jed says it's done. Jed says that SRI APRI work provided the verification in 1992. Uh, Mel Miles' helium correlation did that job too. It verified the nuclear basis of a heat effect. All done, 1992. Here we are 20-something years later, and we're still talking about it. You can seek scientific truth through correlation. Here I'm quoting Abed uh, Lomax in the issue of current science that uh, Srinivasan and Millenberg very uh, nicely puts together. Abed focuses attention on correlation as having the power to overcome potential systematic errors in single measurements. If measurements are correlated, then the possibility of systematic error becomes much, much less. Quoting Arvid now, cold fusion effects have often been called unreliable, even by those convinced of their reality. In this community, as close as it is and as, and as filled with as nice a people as it is, we still find uh, charges my work isn't unreliable. My work could be heat. Your work is unreliable. I don't believe in the tree, or I don't believe in the helium. So, you know, but that's, that's good. I mean, that's a good thing, as long as it has a scientific basis. Uh, but again, the, the chaotic nature of material conditions so far has made ordinary reliability elusive. Flashman Pond's heat effect produces more than one effect. Two being uh, heat and helium. 1991, Mel measured both, found they were correlated. And um, this was uh, replicated well. And once the, the, the statistical chance of Mel's correlation between heat observation and helium observation is nearly a million to one. That, that, that this was done, uh, you know, stochastically. The insanity of common scientific response to cold fusion is that the evidence of reality was discovered by Miles in 1991, recognized as significant by Huizenga in 1993, and was confirmed by multiple research groups. Well, I point, this is Abed's words, well, as I pointed out, there's an I to dot and a T to cross. The preponderance of evidence is now very much that cold fusion is real. The evidence of heat and helium is passed beyond a reasonable doubt. So, so verification, correlation, we're, we're good with those uh, shuns. How about the rest? To make progress, I claim that one of two things needs to be done, preferably both. We need an unmistakable and irrefutable scientific proof that nuclear effects take place in condensed matter by means at rates with products different from similar reactions occurring in free space. That is, condensed matter nuclear science is a real thing, the fact that it occurs in a lattice is significant, as Julian Schwinger, the prince 
of condensed matter nuclear physics said very, very early on in 1989, theory is going to help us here. And, and uh, Peter Hagelstein presented <laughs> interesting new uh, concepts. Uh, yes, I've been listening to Peter so long that I have his voice in my head at nights. Uh, I can see his equations. Um, but uh, theory is coming along. Uh, as I've often said, the problem with theory isn't theorists, it's experimentalists. We haven't given the theorists sufficient uh, ammunition to fuel their uh, imaginations. Point two. Demonstration must be made of a practical use of the energy created. I, I, when I wrote those words, I didn't realize that I'd already said them in 1996. So how do we do this? Demonstration and uh, utilization. What is the problem today? Scientific proof without practical reality hasn't worked to convince the world. I made the arguments that we have the scientific proof. We have he helium uh, correlated. We have uh, tritium. And the tritium evidence came to us already pre-replicated. Uh, the work of Clayter, uh, Storms, Srinivasan, and Bokris, four highly talented individuals working in highly competent research groups told us that these experiments sometime produced tritium. A single atom of tritium produced in any of our experiments is proof that CMNS is real. That didn't work. Our approach to replication has been poor. Uh, in, in 19, at ICCF 14, which Dave will remember when that was, but it was a while ago, I made the claim that, uh, well, the charge, that if the claim is made that replication is crucial to the development of our field, to determine the parameters for advancement, to prove reality to critics, or to uncover systematic error, then it is astonishing that attempts to replicate the Fleischmann-Pons effect have been so few, methodologically so limited. This lack of attention to detail is precisely the reason that uh, replicability remains on the table. Our, re our efforts at replication have been shocking. We have, we're, we're all so fertile in our experimental uh, imagination that given the chance to replicate, we can't avoid the impulse to improve. There have been very few legitimate, honest, direct, engineering replications of any of the effects that we've talked about. One that was done, again, John Paul was involved, uh, in Longchamp, a direct engineering replication of the Fleischmann Pons uh, high temperature heat producing experiments. The, the conclusions of the authors of the paper that came out of that replication were that Martin's right. You know, what he said is right. It's true. It's there. It's real. I've already spoken about our publication record. Uh, basically, it's not easy for somebody who wants to enter into the fields to go to, to any place and find, you know, a set of papers that they, that they should read in order to uh, prepare themselves to enter the field experimentally that needs to be better uh, codified, and I think in time that uh, will be. And to my knowledge, there is no written replicable, replicable, rep, geez, it's hard to say, replicable procedure or protocol. Nobody's written down on a piece of paper a procedure that, if followed, will always work. So I want to de demonstrate. I want to do something simpler than a steam engine connected to a generator, the generator feeding the steam, the dumbed down steam engine providing its ignition, initiation, and, and control. Make the thing a closed loop and have some power left over to do something. The talisman that we create for that purpose 
It's got to work on two levels. It's got to be sufficiently simple and obvious that no hidden error can possibly exist to negate the result. We're going to have to communicate this to people who are going to be bright. They're going to be possibly technical or some, somewhat technical, but they're not going to be specialists. That the individual that we're trying to communicate with will hire himself a physics professor to do uh, due diligence. As a consultant, uh, and I've been a consultant, the, you, can, you cannot make mistakes as a consultant. You can't make an error. If you do that, you don't get any more consulting jobs if you're known to be a, a bumbler. <laughs> so the physics professor is going to find some fault or some reason it's not true or some uh, reason to, to uh, uh, cage his um, uh, statements. Uh, uh, we had an experience of that at EPRI. The, the work at SRI, we were confident of it, happy with it, realized we weren't breaking through, so we brought in two senior people, uh, Dick Garland and Nate Lewis, to review the work at SRI, to kick the experiments, poke them, and find out you know, what, the, what the problem was, and write a report thereafter. We did this twice, actually. The other group, well, the four Bs, Alan Bard was involved, Howard Birnbaum. Basically, the, these guys come in, they write a report, we let them see everything, experiments, data, direct access to whatever they wanted. The reports always say the same thing. These are good people doing good experiments. We couldn't find any error. But it's a complicated experiment, and there might be one. <laughs> it's actually worse than having no report. <laughs> and I say that we're going to need to make the energy that we should. This is just a strategy here. The energy produced must be sufficiently net positive that useful work can be made of it. What chances do we have of doing that? What would we need to do? What are the characteristics of a prototype? Well, what, what would be the power level? What temperature? What, what uh, gain? Output power over input power, output energy over input energy. And at this stage, we're not concerned primarily with cost. I don't care how much it costs. Safety, I, I know I shouldn't say that, but it, we can put it behind whatever barrier you want. Uh, I mean, it, we're not going to let this loose on the civilian population so we can maintain safety in, in the laboratory. I don't care if it's practical. I don't care if it's reliable. I'd like it to do what I say it's going to do more than half the time. That 50% would be enough. It doesn't have to be beautiful or elegant. That's always good, but this is not something that we need to concern ourselves with right now. <laughs> there are some candidate systems with which I'm uh, familiar. I'm sorry for the, for the smaller words. There are three candidate systems that I have direct personal uh, experience with. The second one, not so much. But the electrochemical PDD LIOD experiment is the one I have. 90% of my familiarity with it. And this is the, you know, I'm looking for my keys under the street light. This is my street light, the electrochemical BD uh, LIOD experiment. I agree with Jean Paul yesterday said that electrochemistry is too hard, right? We, should, we, we can't rely on electrochemistry to take us to, you know, this, this uh, an object that we can unleash on the public. Uh, a civilian population, it's too hard. It is too hard. He's right. <laughs> but the good news about the electrochemical uh, experiment is it has already demonstrated all of the characteristics that we need for my prototype. It's already been done. It was done with by uh, energetic technologies, ETI, in their famous uh, experiment, ETI 64, which I've spoken about very many times. This, um, I think Dave put the slide up uh, yesterday. 40 kilojoules of input, 1.14 megajoules of uh, output, gain of 27.5, and that's an important uh, number. And it uh, boiled water, so we've got 100 degrees C out of it. It's got some bad things associated with it. It's only demonstrated once or twice. It hasn't been replicated for the last 10 years, and this reliance on 
dirty, dangerous electrochemistry. There are other systems. I'm not going to go uh, through them. Time is ticking down, but you could do this in the metal uh, gas, hydrogen gas system. My guess is if this thing ever becomes widespread and, and large scale, it will be a metal gas system, and there are some very good reasons for that cost being one of them, uh, materials degradation being another, but the, uh, there's a little bit of a pull over the uh, nickel hydrogen uh, stuff right now. And uh, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not convinced either way, I don't know, uh, because I haven't seen the effect in my own laboratory with my own eyes, I therefore don't believe. Uh, immediately falling into the um, region of people that I criticized before. But, um, but there are, you know, these are ways. But I'm just going to focus on this uh, first one. How are we going to do that? If the charge is demonstration prototype, electrochemical system, how much heat do we need? Well, we're, uh, you know, like all simians, we're touch and see things. I believe that to be real, you need to be able to see it or feel it. Numbers are not good enough, especially where heat is concerned, because heat is ephemeral, unless you can do work with it. I said that one watt is too small to convince, and 100 watts is too hard, at least for the uh, electrochemistry. And the argument for that was persuasively made by Ed Storms in his first book, he reviewed um, 242 successful heat-producing experiments. And you can see the, the histogram of his results. And his original plot is, is the, uh, the bar graph. And I've, I've superimposed some um, uh, exponential curves on that just to show how the trends go. But basically, half of the successful experiments were less than 1.25 watts. So the, these are too small. Uh, as you go up, there's some power in the tail, though. And if you look, you know, between 1.25 and 2.5 watts, which I think still is too small, 35 experiments, but greater than 10 watts, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say 10 watts is enough. 40 experiments, 15 electrochemical experiments, 12% of the electrochemical experiments uh, fall into this region are greater than 10 watts. So, it has been done. We might, you know, we might have a shot at, at producing a 10 watt demonstrator. But um, there's a savage beast of Sadie Carnot comes to beat us down. If we had 10 watts of heat, how much could we demonstrate? How much power could we put into the system to maintain that operation? And, and, and how much could we get out for show? The um, blue solid line here is the kind of efficiency uh, with a thermal rejection temperature of 20 degrees. So, so by the time you get to 500 degrees, your efficiency is 60 odd percent. But remember, see, limit, the kind of limit is, it's a limit that can't be reached and it can't even be approached. And it's harder to approach it as you get lower in temperature. So we're going to have to beat that limit by a lot. But I've plotted some points on here. Uh, the, the dotted curves are, are, are various cal uh, calculations based upon the gain. You know, how, how much power we can use for show is a function of how much power we need to keep the beast uh, running. So, uh, but if we had ETI 64, the, the I'm not sure they dare touch this thing, but <laughs> I won't. You, you find it, it's on, it's on the 100 degree line. The point up there is that the ETI 64 result, if we had that result, pushed it through a thermal, uh, you know, heat to electrical conversion, fed the electricity needed for the experiment, we would have five watts left over for a demonstrator. Uh, you know, Dennis uh, Cravens could use it to charge up his electrified Model A, or Dave could use it, or Steve could use it to uh, power their cell phones. And five watts to demonstrate a flashing light or ring a bell would be convincing. It's a toy, but it would be convincing. 
Down the bottom is the other ETI experiment, which is a glow discharge experiment. I put it at 100 degrees, but it's a, it's, a, it's a plasma. So that thing could actually be sitting up at 500 degrees, and that efficiency would then be more than 50%. So you get four watts out of that. So either of the ETI experiments would serve the purposes of my demonstrator. <coughs> my best uh, results at SRI are the green points, which sort of fall on the line, and, and I've, I've split them out here. If you plot gain versus how much power you're going to get, the thermal efficiency, 500% thermal efficiencies, you get the percentage of, of, of input per suit. So the ETI system sitting, the, the star, my light is gone red, the star performer is up here at some 500%. The SRI cells, the best of them, the ones I was most proud of, will fall below the line. All of them needed more power to operate then uh, a, a thermal to electric conversion would supply even at the Carnot limit, which you can't achieve. So uh, to, 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 um, to be kind to SRI and me, our, our experiments were not intended to be demonstrators, but they could not have performed as such. Conclusions? Yeah, don't worry about time. You're okay. My conclusions. Reasonable pathways exist to explore or exploit the Fleischmann Pons heat effect. The pathways have got to involve these five shuns verification, correlation, replication, demonstration, utilization. For wide acceptance, demonstration must be made of a practical use of this energy. This is my assertion, just me saying this. This might not be true, there may be other pathways, but since I said it in 1996 and forgot it, so I'm saying it again now, it might be true, you know, if I thought of it twice. We need to identify a demonstration prototype. Electrochemical methods with which I am most familiar could work for this demonstrator. They have worked. Rarely, but if we could uncover the circumstances and conditions under which those experiments did work and do them better, uh, we could do it by electrochemistry. I said before, and I agree with uh, Jean-Paul, I doubt that an electrochemical system can be made uh, widely available to the public. It's too challenging. It's, it's too hair-trigger on small concentrations of impurities and electrochemistry is a tough game. There are very few people that have succeeded who weren't well-trained electrochemists, and a few who are very lucky. Dennis uh, Cravens is not an electrochemist, but in, uh, at ICCF4 in uh, Maui in 1993, at the end of the session, uh, Martin Fleischmann got up and complimented uh, Dennis uh, Cravens for his understanding of the system, what Dennis had figured out, what you needed to do, how you needed to do it, even why you needed to do it. Dennis figured out, he's not an electrochemist, but he's a great tinkerer. He asks great questions, annoyingly sometimes. And, um, you know, you've got to be lucky too, but you've got to try to be lucky. Operating temperature for my prototype, operating temperature is important. High gain is crucial, and gain is more easily affected in the denominator than the numerator. We're going to need a certain amount of power out, but we want to do everything we can to make the power in as small as possible so we can get high gain. It's gain that's going to allow us to beat Carnot. So our goal is to create the heat effect at low input power, and that's what I have. Thank you. Mike's willing uh, to take questions. Anybody wants to ask a question, kindly come to the mic so it can be recorded. Let's see what, ah, Jeff. Well, anyway, Ed Storms and Dennis Craig is both of them. Excuse me for a second. 
Uh, would the technician in the back turn on the uh, microphones, please? Thanks. Would you put the last slide up again, please? Uh, well, anyway, there, there, there are two recipes published, one by Ed Storms and the other by Dennis Graves. Maybe they're not complete, but they, they, they have told everyone how they did. Sorry, I, I, was, I was fiddling with our slides. Yeah, just saying there are recipes published by Ed and by Dennis, and that's awesome. They may be not complete, but pretty complete. Okay, I, I can back it up. Um, <laughs> Have them send them to me. I will look them over and see if that is in fact a true statement. I don't. I don't know that that is true. Ed, I would like to uh, reinforce uh, your contention that Cole Fusion has to prove it at this point, and also your uh, statement that it's very difficult to replicate. But I would like to point out that I, I'm familiar with two replications uh, that were made that should have demonstrated the reality. The first one was when I was working at Los Alamos. I got uh, material from Takahashi, who had made a piece of uh, palladium that was active in his hands. Mm -hmm. And he sent samples around the world to laboratories, including my own. And I was able to produce uh, nine watts from the sample that he, was, that he gave me. But then uh, he ran out of material and had another batch made uh, claiming that it was the same, but uh, a sample was sent to me and it produced no energy whatsoever. So he went back to Tanaka Metals and asked them to make a batch that was identical. And they succeeded and made a batch that again was active, but not as active as the first batch. This should have, this was done in 1991, and it should have been proof that two things. First of all, it could be replicated. It was replicated by numerous laboratories, and it, was, it demonstrated that the palladium was batch sensitive. And you also demonstrated that in your work, and everybody has seen that. There is something characteristic about the way in which palladium has been treated in its manufacture that makes it active, and it does not require anything special to be done to it once it has acquired that characteristic. The, the replication doesn't have to be done identically because I treated my palladium that was given to me in a different manner than Takahashi did and yet it became active. The second uh, replication involved uh, Dennis Lett's uh, laser, the first uh, single laser. Uh, you replicated that uh, under uh, Dennis's uh, help I did it independently. Dennis helped me, he sent me the laser. But I did it in an entirely different uh, environment and saw the same effect that he was claiming. The, the effect, however, was a little different. The laser did not initiate the effect. The effect was initiated, and then the laser increased the magnitude. So it ended up producing a somewhat different conclusion. But nevertheless, it was a valid replication. So I, I would like to point out that a lot of information is available that in a normal scientific context would be proof to any rational individual. There is something about this particular subject that is not rational. And we have to take that into account. It's not just scientific. We're dealing with something entirely independent of science. No, I, I, I almost completely agree with you. Uh, but I think you make my point, and you did it and that didn't serve to convince the outside community. The replication that I'm looking for is a procedure that is written down, doesn't require any magical materials, that will work, and I'll give you 50% of the time. And, and we, we don't have such a procedure. And your replications make my point that you didn't do the same thing. It's not a replication. You ran an experiment guided by this hypothesis or, or concept uh, convinced me that I was pre-convinced. What we need is somebody that to, something that can convince people who are at the moment completely ignorant of the field. Let's go to the right. Next question. Uh, one, one more point to that, um, since you uh, elaborated a bit on what I would say. The point is that the palladium has to start 
with the ability to become active. What you do to it later on can increase the possibility of that happening, and that's where your point comes in. That would be the recipe. But if you don't start with active palladium or something that can become active, you're wasting your time no matter what you do. That's true. No, I, I completely agree with you. That's the magic material problem. Right. Question here on the right. Mike, good to see you being able to fly, firstly. Secondly, I want to speak to collaboration and changing experiments. When we collaborated with Francesco Cellani, we made the mistake of trying to do what he said he was going to do next, which was change the borosilica glass to quartz uh, to allow higher temperature. We made the mistake in our early days, and we didn't see excess heat the first experiment. When Matthew Galat ran it, we saw it the first time. Uh, we saw an excess that appeared to be lower than Chalani's, but over two years we found out his excess due to uh, systematic errors was much closer to ours, uh, and so we were just showing what we saw. So uh, that was replicated by Matthew Delaz, uh, Hunt, and uh, uh, Nicholas Chauvin in a range of systems. Published where? Uh, it's published in the Journal of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science. Uh, it was also published, or some, some parts of it were published in the, the Indian Journal. Um, so, and, and broadly on the internet for, for real time access. Okay, let me just interrupt you on that point though. I'm not talking about replications that is capable of convincing the people in this room. I'm talking about replications that is capable of convincing the world. It's a quite different scale of operation. Okay. <laughs> um, but what we, we learned that was basically not having a borosilicate glass which had boron and lithium carbonate, there's a flux in there, uh, could be very, very important. So we, we, I'm speaking to the fact that we made a mistake the first hour by trying to change the system, and it's just not a good idea. Try, try and replicate what you've been told or claimed was. Yeah, as I've been saying for 20 years. <laughs> okay, George. Mike, uh, reflecting back, uh, uh, you and others, uh, sufficient evidence to convene uh, this uh, panel from the DOE to review the field, and we thought that they would change their opinion, but failed. I wonder if you could comment about that. We were in that room. I've forgotten who we had in the room, but we, we had, we, we, won the day. You know, we, we took our group in, even with Steve Jones sort of negating. <laughs> but we, we won the day, you know. Uh, at the end of that review, uh, Peter was there, uh, Mike Milich was there. We, um, the, the panel of people convened in front of us were overjoyed and alarmed at how positive the information was. Somebody who I've been fighting with for years, a famous electrochemist who's initials are AB, came over and shook my hand, Mike. We had no idea that so much progress had made how, 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 how strong the field is. We went outside, hugged each other, and said, God damn it, we've done it. Until the bureaucrats got their hands on it and wrote up the report. So we succeeded. I, I, I claim that we succeeded beyond any reasonable level at convincing the people that we were able to communicate directly with. A lot of the reviewers obviously didn't read the material that we sent them, and their comments were uh, uh, conflicted by material that we had supplied them. So, so the people that weren't in the room, I think probably 50% of them didn't read any of the material. They already had an opinion. They didn't need any evidence or information. They knew what was real. So. But I, I would never try and convince DOE. I, DOE doesn't have, uh, even the United States has no particular reason to want coal fusion. The United States is energy rich. Energy is a strategic asset to the United States. If we give it free to everybody else, that's a strategic disadvantage to the United States. And that's annoying question for you. Uh, <laughs> That ETI, if they had 20 times gain, why aren't they pursuing it? Why aren't you still helping them pursue it? What happened if they really had that amount of gain? Oh, I, mean, I think partly the magic materials problem, but um, 
I mean, we had, we've, we've experienced this, and Ed spoke about it several times. We, when we run out of a particular lot of material, the effect doesn't, doesn't produce. But what I didn't mention is that the ETI results were, I think, enabled by Irv Dardic's uh, superwave. I mean, this was this really, really funky waveform, which I dismissed out of hand when I first heard of it as being completely outrageous and impossible and, uh, and inconsistent with my decades of electrochemical training. But the, uh, the sponsor pursued it for a fairly considerable time. Uh, we attempted to replicate it many times and I was involved and we failed to replicate it. I believe that the effect as originally produced was, was uh, convincing and Rob uh, Duncan went over and reviewed the data and looked at it and it became that um, um, uh, 60 minutes piece, right? So, so that, that's what brought Rob into the field. So it's real, but we were not able to do it again. And, and yes, it's an annoying question, Dennis, because you know the answer as well as I do. There is something that we don't understand or something missing in our understanding. We, we have an incomplete understanding of the, of the conditions necessary to produce this effect. Are you good for any more questions? Are you still up? I'm fine. Okay. Let's uh, take the two people still standing. Ito. Uh, I've been hearing a lot about the electrodes intact from non-active to the lady. Uh, is she to be a bit problem? Now, I'm not sure. I'm pretty new to this field. But in my mind, palladium has four or five stable isotopes, I believe. Could there be a relationship between the isotopic uh, perfection and the preparation of the electrodes uh, being of influence here? Um, I, I don't know, but I don't think so. But it's possible. You know, we, we, the isotopic uh, content of palladium is pretty, pretty fixed. You know, the different sources all have the same sort of isotope uh, distributions. Um, I have to say that one of our early uh, heat producing experiments, we submitted it to uh, a surface analysis by laser ionization as a way of uh, uh, sufficiently sensitive to, to pick up the, the masses of the different isotopes. We, we had seen a lot of excess heat, we were analyzing the cathode, we sent the cathode in and came back and the, the ratio of isotope the six isotopes, it, it moved around in, in a very logical way where you would expect them to move if, uh, if neutrons were going to, to, to more stable states. We, we were cracking out you know, bottles of champagne, not the first time we cracked out bottles of champagne. And uh, so I, I took the thing back, the report back to the technician who'd run this analysis and said, this is what you gave me, is this, is this real? Yes. Do you realize that this is not the natural isotopic distribution of uh, palladium? He said, oh, I'll recalibrate the instrument. So <laughs> it, it, it went away. But so I, I, to this day, I don't know whether it was real and or not. So I don't know that. I think the isotopes of palladium possibly do play some kind of role, maybe. But I'm not sure that palladium plays a role. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Last question, please. Mike, thanks. Thanks for uh, producing that list. <laughs> challenging field. Uh, one question for you and I guess to the community, uh, I'm embarrassed to say this, but when Pond and Fleshman first came out with the results, I was probably running our own diapers. And you know, I think there's a real risk here in the next 10 to 15 years that we could lose a lot of institutional knowledge. And you know, what do you suggest in terms of addressing that gap of bringing younger folks in and how do we do that as a community? I think you know, just you know, noticing that here, I, I think uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a very good point. And, and looking around this room, I just I did a mental uh, a, assessment. Um, we've got a missing generation problem. You know, to, to be uh, a competent physical electrochemist or physical chemist that acquired the skills, the training, the education, the experience, you know, I, I submit that you're, you're going to find that you do your best work from your late 30s until you're 60. I don't think there's anybody, anybody in this room that fits into that group. You know, stand up if you do. Okay, good. No, no, you're too young, Trevor. No, the, um, 
so, so, so this is the powerhouse of, of physical science, is that age group. You know, when this thing started, I was 40, Sam Pons was 45, Martin Fleischmann was 62. Martin was very much at the end of his, you know, highly uh, capable years and, and, and declined, you know, conspicuously from that uh, time. Um, I got into the field at 40. I was uh, basically at the, in the most powerful, most knowledgeable, most influential point of my life. I had a large research group. I was able to turn this on. But you would find very few people today who would have sufficient courage at that time of their career to get into this field because it's career suicide. You can't publish. That, that wipes out all academics. You can't get any funding for it. So uh, that group is not represented. And that is the group precisely that we need to work on this field. Young folk like you are good. You know, if you were, this thing came out in 1989, uh, if you were born before, if you were born after 1980, you were not tarred by the slime that uh, was, was dumped on the field in order to tarnish it and turn people away from it. So, so you're, you're, uh, you're, you come with fresh mind, fresh eyes, you're willing to engage. So I, there are a lot of young folk who are willing to engage and a lot of old folk who refuse to give up, but we don't have any, anybody in the middle, right? So it is, it is a problem. I don't have a solution, but I recognize the problem. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And that was Dr. Michael McCubre speaking at the 21st International Conference on Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, ICCF 21, on the Fleischmann Pons Heat and Ancillary Effects. What do we know and why? How might we proceed? That concludes our show for today. Find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org and subscribe on iTunes. Keep Cold Fusion Now continuing to work on this important new energy solution. Go to our page at patreon.com slash coldfusionnow and make a pledge. When we deliver, you reward the work. You can also donate direct through PayPal on our website at coldfusionnow.org. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.